Hi, y'all. Just a note about today's show. This episode is recorded in June and includes discussion about research that the firm Muddy Waters did into the Chinese coffee chain Luck and Coffee. Recent reporting, however, has indicated that Muddy Waters and other firms got their information about Luckin by an anonymous report, meaning that Muddy Waters wasn't responsible for the original research. So please keep in mind that the episode doesn't incorporate this new information. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Andrew Verstein, professor of law at UCLA. We'll be discussing his article, Mixed Motives Insider Trading, which is forthcoming in the Iowa Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Andrew, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Andrew, I wondered if we could start the conversation with a little bit of a discussion about the motivations behind this article, what prompted you to write it. And as maybe part of that, I wonder if you could offer our listeners, uh, obviously, insider trading is a big topic, substantively, but I wonder if you could offer them a little bit of a primer in terms of when it comes to trading securities, what information is okay to trade on? What information is not okay to trade on? And how do the lines sometimes blur between those two? Sure. So most trading in the United States is lawful. You can trade because you want to rebalance your portfolio or because you need cash or because you uh, want to show your support for a company. And you can even trade if you know things that other people don't know that give you an advantage that may strike some people as unfair. So long as you acquired that information in a legitimate fashion, like you researched it very well or at least found it on a subway seat. What you're not allowed to do is trade on the basis of material non-public information that you acquired or used in breach of a duty of trust and confidence. For example, if you are an executive at a company and you learn something at work and then trade on it, well, you weren't supposed to do that. You learned it at work for work reasons. And so you're betraying a duty of trust and confidence, and that's a felony. Likewise, if you sell that information to a hedge fund that then goes ahead and trades on it. And this divide is pretty logical. We want to allow people to diligently research information and bring it to the capital markets and get stock prices to be accurate, but we don't want them to steal and betray. So to summarize, there are plenty of lawful reasons to trade. And if you trade for those reasons, it's lawful, but there are a limited set of prescribed reasons. And if you trade for those reasons, it's unlawful. And that's usually neat and tidy. But the puzzle is that these are not mutually exclusive categorizations. You can have in your head both lawful and unlawful reasons to trade. Humans are the kinds of creatures that act under many influences at once. And that's particularly true in the securities domain uh, because the kinds of people who acquire compelling lawful reasons to trade are also the kinds of people who acquire compelling non-lawful reasons to trade. Like an executive who learns a lot of secrets at work, of course, those are prescribed reasons to trade. You're not supposed to trade on those. But such an executive is also someone who's likely to have almost all their money or a large portion of their money tied up in just their company's securities so that when they need cash, heck, that's the stock they've got to sell. That's a lawful reason to trade that coincides with their unlawful reason to trade in a lot of cases. Likewise, if you're somebody who researches companies for a living, you're like a hedge fund. You're the kind of person who picks up a lot of lawful information because that's your job. You're also the kind of person who might 
be picking up unlawful information. Maybe your employees take it a little too far sometimes, push the edge. So it's not uncommon for people with lawful information and lawful reasons to trade to have unlawful reasons too. And even if it were uncommon, they could say that they have lawful reasons. Pretextual reasons are very common in this space. And there are so many traders who, when they're caught red-handed, say, yeah, but I had independent lawful reasons to buy this stock or sell this stock. So let me go. So securities law, if you look through the securities cases on insider trading, you just find dozens and dozens of people where, at least according to the parties, the prosecutor is saying this person had an unlawful reason and the defendant is saying I had a lawful reason and the court has to decide whether to punish according to the bad motives or forgive according to the good motives. I want to get to what courts have done with those situations in just a moment. But in this article, you introduce a concept of mixed motive, uh, which you draw from fields outside of insider trading or indeed even outside of securities regulation. Could you describe what you mean by mixed motive and how does that connect to the possibility of having both proper and improper motivations for trading that you just described? Everything I've said so far is well known to security scholars and jurists, but under a different name than I have been using. People call this debate about what to do with traders who have lawful and unlawful reasons for trading. They call that the possession use debate or the mental causation debate. And for 30 years, a circuit split with a scholarly literature on both sides of it has tried to figure out what to do with these people, but they haven't called it a mixed motives debate or a motive issue. That's in part because motive is a dirty word in securities law. Uh, judges love to hector defendants or explain to defendants why they aren't allowed to commit securities fraud with a good motive. They're not a hero because they falsified earnings to save the company. So motive has a kind of funny pejorative status within securities. Nevertheless, I try to call this debate by a new name because I think doing so unlocks insights from other domains. All over law and scholarship, from civil rights to tax, corporate law, bankruptcy, antitrust, all sorts of areas of law struggle with motive and with mixed motive defendants. And my article applies this terminology in part to hook up the securities debates to those other debates and see whether there's a solution or an insight lurking elsewhere that securities law could participate in and learn from. You discuss some of the situations where this use possession or mixed motive question might come up. Can you maybe discuss how courts have tackled them? Is it consistent across the board or is there a split between the circuits? And how do those different approaches, assuming that there are, shift the burden between the government and the defendant? Okay. So there are two approaches that courts use, broadly speaking, when they have a mixed motive trader before them. The Second Circuit has, for about 30 years, endorsed a pro-government test called the awareness test or the knowing possession test. This test says that you're in trouble if you knowingly possess prescribed information or you're aware of prescribed information. And another way of saying that is we judge you according to your bad motives. If you traded in part because you knew some illegal secret about company XYZ, it's no excuse that you had some other reason that would have been lawful to trade XYZ. We don't care whether you meditated on the illegal information and really used it. The contrary result arises in the Ninth Circuit. There, the government has the burden of showing actual use of the prescribed information so that if you would have traded anyway for lawful reasons and therefore the illegal information wasn't really used, well, then you're fine. 
And that approach is, of course, a more pro-defendant approach. Um, the SEC tried to close the door on this debate 20 years ago in Reg FD by endorsing the Second Circuit's approach, but there's widespread doubt that the SEC succeeded in doing that, and courts have basically ignored Reg FD and kept on doing what they were doing on this issue. Uh, so the Ninth Circuit still seems to be pretty strongly using the actual use standard. One reason this debate continues is that most of the arguments have been drawn on how hard life is for the prosecutor. Uh, so the Second Circuit approach is thought to make life too easy for the prosecutor. If you don't like the Second Circuit approach, it makes them stand at a, a great advantage because they only have to show that the defendant knew the information, not that they used it. And the Ninth Circuit approach is thought to make it too hard for prosecutors because they have to disprove every lawful motive the defendant can posit. And the trouble is that we can't use difficulty for prosecutors as a criterion for deciding between these two rules until we decide whether we want prosecutors to win. That is to say, the proper treatment of mixed motive defendants requires us to know whether we want them to be in jail before we decide whether prosecutors are going to have too difficult a time putting them in jail. And that's a policy question. And I think that policy question has been obscured. And I think that policy question, if you look at the two rules on the ground, the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit approaches, I think they both show a kind of blinkered policy outlook that really ignores a lot of what's at stake here, and they ignore different things. The Ninth Circuit pro-defendant approach, it protects defendants who had a lawful reason to trade, no matter, no matter how brazen their use of inside information. And that seems problematic to me, at least. So under the Ninth Circuit approach, if you have even a thin read of a lawful reason to trade, that's excuse enough, no matter how serious your use of inside information. Like Martha Stewart in the Martha Stewart case, you remember she got her call from her broker tipping her off to Clone's imminent collapse that it was going to lose 90% of its value. And one of her excuses, one of her defenses was that she had long planned to sell the stock if it dipped 2% in value. And it dipped 2% in value, so she sold her stock. On the Ninth Circuit approach, you know that would be a good defense if you believed her, because she had a lawful reason, and that is exonerative. And to me, that seems to ignore just the weight of the unlawful information that she was working with. The Second Circuit approach seems to be blinkered in the other way, in that it gives no regard at all to the trader's legitimate interest in trading. And the example that drives this one home for me uh, is kind of recent. It's, it's a little hypothetical, but Muddy Waters LLC is a short seller. They research companies, figure out if they're overvalued, and then short them, bet against them, and then tell the world that they're overvalued and why. And if they convince the world, then they make a lot of money and an overvalued company comes back down to earth. And that's that's a pretty good activity. And it's, it's pretty labor intensive. This year, they announced in January that Luckin Coffee was their target. And they revealed a report that involved 1,500 employees physically visiting coffee shops across China, examining 25,000 receipts, 22,000 hours of watching in-store activities. And they concluded from all this that you know the sales were fabricated. There was no way there was this much sales truly happening. We were in the stores. There's nobody in these stores. That's a really impressive amount of research that they did in order to make some money off of revealing the fraud. And I can just imagine what if one of the investigators had accidentally promised a Luckin employee that they wouldn't use the information that they learned that day. And now you've got a misappropriation that the law would prohibit you from using because now it's illegal to trade until you've done something to cleanse that problem. It seems really unrealistic and wasteful to endanger 
Muddy Waters investigation based on an awareness standard that if Muddy Waters is even aware of any sliver of prescribed information that they can't trade anymore. So both approaches seem to me blinkered on policy grounds, and they cry out for some approach that balances the legitimate interests that uh, on both sides that the law is seeking to advance. And in the paper, what approach do you propose? And how should security scholars understand the proper approach to this issue? So the paper presents a primary motive test as a better legal standard for courts to use. Under that test, you can trade if your lawful motive for trading predominates, and you can't trade, it's illegal to trade, if your unlawful motive predominates. If you are Martha Stewart and you have a really thin lawful motive for trading, but you've got this really pressing illegal reason for trading, you should sit on the sidelines. You shouldn't trade. Conversely, if you're Muddy Waters and you've got this multi-month, multi-million dollar investigation, all lawful, you can trade even if one of your investigators crossed a line. And so it's a balancing test of a kind. This test is not one that I made up. It is a test that is used in lots of areas of the law. We use it in antitrust, bankruptcy, corporate law, tax. It's used all over adjacent areas of law. And part of the appeal for me of bringing this in is that it puts corporate law, securities law, tax law, all these areas of law into dialogue so that they can teach each other things. I show in the paper that this test delivers strictly superior results to the pre-existing tests under most circumstances by attractive policy desiderata. And I show that the few cases where it's not strictly superior, it's still broadly superior. It's still going to be attractive to a lot of people. So it's a better test for most circumstances, and it is time-tested, and it has been used in many areas of the law. So it's uh, not something new under the sun. It, it does draw on the experience of adjacent areas, as you mentioned. Andrew, what key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this conversation or from the paper, and what open questions do you maybe see in this area? Well, I'll say on open questions, there are plenty of issues that are close to this paper's topic that this paper nevertheless doesn't take up because they have slightly different features that require slightly different treatment. But securities law is full of mixed motive issues once you start looking for them. So one of them is the personal benefit test. If you get a tip from someone who just wanted to reveal a fraud, you can trade on that. That's the Dirks case. But if you get a tip on someone because they're like, hoping you'll bribe them or something later. Well, that's illegal. That's that's them giving it for a personal benefit. Yet in the real world, we know a lot of people have both motives. They're hoping to improve their reputation or, or get a payback, but they're also trying to reveal a fraud at their company or something. And we don't yet have an analysis of what to do with these mixed motives tippers. We don't have a rule that tells us exactly what mental state a person has to be in when they set up an MB51C trading plan. These plans let you trade even if you later acquire inside information. We don't know what level of inside information you have to have at the time you set up the plan. You know, you're not supposed to have inside information, but is the difference different in the second and ninth circuit just what you can have? That's a question that I don't think has been answered. And also the question that got me started is a securities question that isn't insider trading. But the thing that got me into all this mixed motive stuff is from market manipulation. In U.S. v. Mulherin, the defendant argues that he bought stock because he liked the stock. The government argues that he was trying to manipulate the stock. One thing the court has to wrestle with is, okay, suppose both of them are telling the truth. Does that, what's the legal implication of that? It's going to be hard to figure out. You know, does that, would the government win if both were true? Would the government lose if both were true? So I think there are really interesting questions in market manipulation on intent 
especially since market manipulation law, t- you know, famously turns almost entirely on intent. And so there's a lot of mixed motive issues that remain just outside the scope of this paper. Also related to this paper is the issue that got this paper in particular started, which is the unintended consequences of information regulation. One of the things that I'm sensitive to in this paper is the concern that a really good researcher like Muddy Waters LLC could get sidelined by some information that they shouldn't have gotten, but maybe the consequences will be too great. And and that could have an effect on the information production in the economy. I'm really interested in the unspoken assumption of so many people that it's always good to acquire information so the law can tax some information and people will still go get information. Actually, sometimes sometimes the law can go too far with that. And it's at least something we have to keep our eye on. Our guest today has been Andrew Verstein, professor of law at UCLA. We've discussed his article, Mixed Motives Insider Trading, which is forthcoming in the Iowa Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Andrew, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.